Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Donald Trump, this is a guy who was trained as a reality TV star. NBC brought in some of the best people they've got to train him, and you can train anybody, well, anybody with a modicum of certainly understanding of the media, which if, if there's nothing else Donald Trump understands, he understands the media. I mean, he got himself $2 billion worth of free media leading up to the 2016 election. He wiped out the entire Republican field and ended up in the White House because NBC taught him how to do media. They taught him how to make a reality show happen, you have to set up, you have conflict, you have tragedy and hope, you swing people from one emotion to the other as far and fast as you can, you have to have a hero, you have to have a goat, there have to be good guys and bad guys or drama doesn't work. In fact, the quality, the, the goodness of the good guy is always defined by how evil the bad guy is, which is something I didn't understand until I was in my 30s and I took a class on screenwriting. And I wanted to write novels. I've written a bunch of them. Only two have ever been published, and I'm not a particularly good novelist, so don't even bother trying to read them. But the point is that I delved into this whole thing. And I remember taking uh, Robert McKee's uh, course on screenwriting, which is amazing, by the way, if you have any interest in fiction or writing. And, and he said, people think it's all about the hero. This is my own words. I, you know, he, I, when I say he said, I, I'm, what I'm really telling you is what I understood him to say. But basically, he said that people think that in writing that you've got to come up with a great hero, and it's all going to be about the hero, and, and how heroic is the hero, and all this kind of stuff. And in fact, it's not about the hero at all. It's about the bad guy. The reason why is because without a bad guy, the hero's not a hero. I mean, if, if Superman just you know, flew around and stopped people robbing 7-Elevens, it would be like, so what? But he's Superman because there's Lex Luthor. Batman is Batman because there's the Riddler and, you know, all these supervillains. 
Clarice in Silence of the Lambs was this extraordinary FBI agent. Why? Because she was up against Tony Perkins. You know, she was up against the cannibal, Hannibal Lecter. So it's always the bad guys. And this is something that the media doesn't understand and Donald Trump does because he was trained in this stuff. So look at the bad guys that Donald Trump has rolled out. And in every single case, he's saying, these are the bad guys, these people are so evil that you have to have me, Donald Trump, to conquer them on your behalf. And he started out with Mexicans. They're rapists, they're killers, they're, they're gang members, they're coming to take your, you know, burn your house down and rape your wife. I mean, basically, this was his message. There's evil out there. And then he shifted that to Hillary Clinton. She's the evil one and the Democrats, and now he's shifted it to Kim in North Korea, who was our enemy, now he's our friend. Then to China, he, they're our enemies. Maybe we can work something out, but you know, it's always, oh, look at this enemy, right? And now it's Iran. And he's portraying them as the, as the nexus of evil. And the reason that he's doing this is not because he's, you know, he's not concerned about Iran. Iran was in a bottle, basically. They were boxed in by, by Obama's, uh, and it wasn't Obama, just Obama. It was China and Russia and Germany and France and the UK. These were the countries that signed this deal with Iran to, to keep them from being the actual bad guys, to let them just be, you know, some religious nutcakes who are running their own country. And by religious nutcakes, I'm not, I don't mean Islam. I'm talking about fundamentalism, whether it's Muslim or Christian or, you know, fill in the blanks. Fundamentalism that justifies violence and oppression, particularly the oppression of women in the name of their God. That's the nutcakes. And so here we have Trump saying, basically, I alone can, remember he said, I alone can solve this problem? First, you define the problem. And so now he comes out and he says, yeah, we were going to strike Iran and we were just minutes out. And I asked the generals, how many people will die? And they said, 150 people. And I said, oh, well, that's a disproportionate response. We're not going to attack them now. He knew from the get-go the casualty count would have been part of the briefing that he got from the Pentagon about, you know, this is what we're going to do and this, this is going to be, these are going to be the costs associated with it. This is just so very, very fundamentally wrong what Donald Trump is doing with this. And it's a lie. He is lying to the American people. He's, you're watching a reality television show. Read his tweet, his, his little four-tweet tweet storm. It's filled with lies because he wants to be the hero. He doesn't care if the world goes to hell. He doesn't care if the world melts down. He doesn't, frankly, I don't think he cares if there's a war in the Middle East. Certainly, he's facilitating one with, with Saudi Arabia and Yemen. He just wants to be the star. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Paul in Oakland, California. Paul, you're on the air. You talk about sometimes this theory in history where the last living survivor or person who has a living memory of an event, humanity usually ends up repeating that event. And I think we're approaching... After that last person dies, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Or the the general memory of it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the general memory of it's lost in the collective consciousness. That's that's the 80-year cycle that we've talked about that uh, Strauss and Howe wrote about in their book, The Fourth Turning. Yes, Paul. Oh, okay, the fourth turning. So, yeah, I think we're, you know, we're running out of survivors for World War II, the Holocaust, the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and the world's getting really dangerous about these things again. So I'm afraid if we don't continue to educate ourselves and each other, things are really going to get ugly. 
Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, Paul. And thank you. Thanks for bringing that up. And, and let me just go off on a quick rant about that, just to inform people who may not know what Paul and I are talking about. Neil Howe, and I forget Strauss's first name. He's now passed away. Neil Howe has been on this program a couple of times. Wrote this book back in the late 90s called The Fourth Turning. And the theory of the book was that basically every 80 years, every four generations, a generation is 20 years, every four generations, our country, and not just our country, they also document this in Europe and other countries as well, basically every 80 years we go through a brand new rebooting cycle and essentially repeat history, only in a different way. And the reason why is because they argue that there are four generations that come about as a consequence of the circumstances of history. It goes a little beyond just what Paul was mentioning, that when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. That was Toynbee's quote. And that is within that 80-year window. But Strauss and Howe said, if you look at, you know, just to start with the generation that experiences a depression and a war, for example, World War II, the Great Depression, World War II. That generation that experiences depression and war gives birth to a generation that are the quiet builders. This was my dad's generation. They, they rebuild the country from the devastation of the depression and the war. That generation gives birth to a generation that says, you know, our parents worked their butts off and what did they get for it? Nothing. You know, why do that? I mean, I want spiritual enlightenment. I want to have a, you know, I want to learn more about the life and about the world. And so that generation gives birth to a seeking generation, the, the uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson generation, my generation, the hippies, the, you know, the, the spiritual seekers. And then that generation gives birth to a generation that says, you know, our grandparents worked their butts off. Our parents sat around and, and stared at their navels and took acid. And neither one of them really, you know, did all that great. And by the way, it's getting harder and harder to make a living. So I'm just going to get rich. Screw it. That fourth generation is a generation that is largely focused on money and largely driven by what you might call greed. But, you know, they don't think of it that way. And their excesses lead to another crash, which leads to another war, which starts the cycle all over again. And that happens every 80 years. And if you go back 80 years from right now, you had the Great Depression and World War II. 80 years before that was the Great Crash of 1856 and the Civil War. 80 years before that was the Great, the great Depression of 1770, followed by the American Revolution. 80 years before that, there was another one. And 80 years before that, there was another one, literally on North America and in Europe, all the way back to the War of the Roses. So that's what he was talking about, just in the event you don't know. Now, moving forward, I want to get into the situation in Iran. And online with us is Jamal Abdi. He's the president of the National Iranian American Council. NIAC, N-I-A-C dot org is their website. You can tweet him at J Abdi or at N-I-A Council. And uh, Jamal, welcome back to the program. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And by the way, there's about a second delay in our telephone. So if we step on each other or whatever, it's all good. These major new sanctions that Donald Trump says he has imposed or is in the process of imposing on Iran to ramp up the pressure, according to a number of economists, well, one specifically, Kalen Birch, a global economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit, that's the Economist magazine, told CNBC's Squawk Box Europe on Monday, quote, we can safely say that Iran's revenue from oil has been cut by at least two-thirds, so they are in a very dangerous economic position. If Trump's sanctions are actually effective at knocking out not just the surface parts of the Iranian economy, but really kick out the underpinnings of the Iranian economy and throw it into the equivalent of a 1930s-style economic depression, 
What will the consequences of that be? And do you think that that's actually what Trump is trying to do? And is that a very real possibility? I do think that that is the strategy, if we can even call it that. So if the sanctions actually succeed in what their intended goal is, well, success supposedly is Iran capitulates and accepts these 12 demands that Pompeo has issued, which essentially equate to Iran completely changing its security posture and letting its guard down when it comes to its regional challengers and foes, doing a 180 on the entire Islamic Republic as it's known. And while I'm sure that we would love to see some of those things happen, or at least some accommodation being reached, uh, it's not going to come through these sanctions. So if the sanctions succeed, which they are, th- these are very successful sanctions, if the goal is to make lives of ordinary Iranians miserable, but if the idea is, which I think it is, is to galvanize Iranians to come out into the streets and put pressure on the government and the regime, and that that pressure will then be translated into some behavior change or some desire to capitulate on the Iranian government's part. What's really happening is the opposite, though, because there is not a organized political movement behind this, and really a lot of the organized you know, civil society inside of Iran has really been crippled by this. You know, they're the canaries in the coal mine of this maximum pressure policy. And so really what we're seeing is Iranian civil society being devastated, the middle class being devastated, all of the levers that could actually put upward pressure on a government or on a regime have all been dismantled by the United States sanctions. And so what you have instead is a government that is becoming or will become increasingly radicalized and where the most hardline forces and the forces that benefit from a securitized environment and benefit from, you know, there's a threat of war, there needs to be a state of emergency. They're the ones that end up accumulating the power and it's at the expense of more moderate voices and civil society voices. So one of the architects of these sanctions once asked me, it was at a pan said, well, would you support sanctions on Nazi Germany? And the response is, well, we did put sanctions on Germany. That's part of the way that we got to the radical state that Adolf Hitler presided over. And there's no history of this approach actually working. And yet the wake-up call that should have been last week of the United States being 10 minutes away from launching military strikes that could have started World War III apparently fell on deaf ears in the Trump administration, and they're going to stay the course and just continue with these sanctions. Consequences be damned. Well, I think you might have already answered my second question, but let me run through it anyway. We should, you would think that Americans would have enough common sense and memory, even recent memory. Our sanctions against Cuba just caused people to become more loyal to Fidel. Our sanctions against Venezuela caused people to become more loyal to Hugo Chavez. The Great Depression here in the United States, which you could argue was not exogenous, you know, it wasn't caused by some external force that we could point to, but there were forces that were blamed for the Great Depression, and probably rightly so, the big banks and Wall Street. It didn't cause Americans to say, oh, I guess we just need to capitulate to the big banks and Wall Street. It pulled Americans together. Tough times. People tend to pull together during tough times. And World War II 
two, during World War II, we had, you couldn't buy butter, you couldn't buy milk, you couldn't buy meat without coupons, without rationing coupons. There were all kinds of limits. I mean, it was functionally sanctions. And did that cause people to say, ah, screw Roosevelt. No, they gave him four terms. When in the history of the world have sanctions ever been successful doing anything other than strengthening your opponents? And when, Jamal, are these idiots who are running American foreign policy going to figure this out? I mean, even Kennedy made this mistake with Cuba. Well, and look at Saddam and Iraq. We had sanctions, crippling sanctions there, and that didn't work in <laughs> in changing Saddam's behavior or in preventing the United States from getting into the most devastating war of at least the last generation. So we've seen this playbook before, and I think that the answer to your question is, yeah, they know this. They know this isn't going to work. That's exactly the point. These are people in John Bolton and Mike Pompeo who are apparently running the show. Trump, I guess, parachutes in and stops the military strikes last minute. But by and large, it seems like it's John Bolton and Mike Pompeo's world, and we're just living in it. And they believe that military action is necessary. They think that we need to get there. And what I view is how they see this is that they see political obstacles to military action more than they see obstacles yeah. coming from Iran. I, so, hey, Jamal, forgive my interruption, but we just have about a minute and a half. And it just occurred to me, The one area where sanctions actually are effective, and you're mentioning Iraq is a great example, is if you actually intend, you know, if your goal is to invade a country, destroy a country, bomb a country, ruin a country, then sanctions actually do work. They weaken a country to the point where you might be able to then attack them. Do you think that these guys are thinking that way, that the goal of these sanctions in Iran is to weaken it enough that they won't have enough, you know, money and resources to run their military? Yeah, I do think so. And I think that even some of the folks who are coming at this from the lens of we need regime change so that we can have a democracy in Iran, which, great, I would love to have a democracy in Iran, but you can't install a democracy. You have to grow a democracy. But I think even they, in reality, people like Mark Dubowitz from Foundation for Defense of Democracies and these, you know, Washington think tanks and lobbies that are essentially the de facto lobbies of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Israel, they don't want Iran to actually be a country that is ruled by its people and that actually has a say, an agency in what's happening in the region. They don't want that. And so the best way to do that is to weaken the country and then destroy it with a war. Iran is already in the midst of an economic war imposed by the United States. And it's just a matter of time until we get into the military course if something doesn't change. Amazing. Amazing stuff. Jamal, thanks so much for dropping by today and talking with us. I really appreciate it. Always happy to join you. Thank you. The website, NIAC.org. It's the National Iranian American Council. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Alex in Milton, Washington, listening on KBCS. Hey, Alex, what's on your mind today? I was thinking the other day about this problem with Iran, and it was really disturbing me because it doesn't seem like Trump is the sort of person that possesses the ability to walk away from a situation like this or to negotiate out. He seems to think you can only win or lose in these situations. And then it also bugs because after 9-11, when we invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, the world was with us, at least. You know, we just got attacked. Now we've alienated... Well, wait a minute. The world was with us on Afghanistan, not on Iraq. But well, no, nobody wanted that Afghanistan. until he gave that ultimatum. You better get out, or we're coming to get you. Yeah. But um, now the world is all alienated against us. You think they're going to sit by and let us just freaking go in and take on Iran? And after we've already done things I- to Iran, like the sanctions and with the Shah... 
if we go in there, those people will never forgive us. There will be no forgetting. Yeah, and, and, and Mossadegh. I mean, the, Iran had a democratically elected administration, and I think it was 1956. The CIA went in and overthrew him and installed the Shah of Iran. I mean, that you know, this, this and the, the Iranians know this, by the way, Alex. Yeah, and they will never forgive us if we go in there. They will not forget either, and there is no win. Yeah. And it will instantly radicalize all kinds of Muslims who before still gave us the benefit of the doubt. If we go in there, it will make so many enemies, and there's no win. There's no way we can go in there and walk out with a win. It's not possible. Yeah. And the only yeah. thing I, I, I thought of that could maybe help us is if Putin steps in and tells Trump, hey, you better stop this crap. Because that's the only guy he's oh, afraid of. And I thought, oh, my God, now that's what I'm, I'm relying on, that maybe Putin can, can scare him into not doing it. But I'm just terrified yeah. of this Iran stuff, because if we go in there, things are going to be so bad that people have no clue, and it's getting close. Yeah, and Russia is right to the north of Iran, and Russia is one of Iran's allies. That's and the only one we have, because he seems to be the only one that scares Trump, that Trump will listen to. Alex, I can't disagree with you. I mean, it's breathtaking to think that Vladimir Putin might save us and prevent World War III. But, I mean, yeah, I, it hadn't occurred to me before. Thank you for that, Alex. I mean, that you're, I think you're absolutely right, because Putin is, appears to be the only guy that Trump listens to and, yeah, and, and the only guy that Trump trusts. And the only other options are so bad. The more I thought about it, I'm like, if we, if we go militarily, we have nobody who's going to have our back. It's, it's like friggin', it's, it, it's reminding me of friggin' the Weimar Republic after Hitler took over and just like, yeah, he went nuts. Where all their allies, yeah, all their allies deserted them. Then he started attacking all his former allies. Yeah, and let's also remember that Russia has a nuclear arsenal that's very similar to our own. I mean, between us and Russia, we could sterilize the planet. I mean, that literally. I mean, we could wipe off, you know, we could create a nuclear winter that would create an extinction event that would rival the previous five, you know, over the last billion and a half, two billion years of geologic history. Yeah, um, and so, instead of talking yeah, about it, all we hear is that Trump saved 150 Iranians. He didn't save anyone. He didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Alex, thanks a lot for the call. So what we need to be doing right now... Oh, man, it pains me to say this. Can you tweet Vladimir Putin? I, I don't know. But, Mr. Putin, please speak to Mr. Trump. <laughs> For Father's Day, Louise and I went out and climbed a mountain. Well, part of one. <laughs> and, boy, am I sore. And, uh, you know, then I had to go back and sit in my, in my office chair and and i was you know I'm, I'm working on this next book and it's like ah why because it's the x chair the x chair provides customized support in an office chair i mean when it comes to supporting perfect posture providing ideal back support no office chair compares to the x chair the secret is the x chair's dynamic variable lumbar support or dvl this patented feature is what sets the x chair apart from every other office chair in the world Ideal posture and support equals comfort, and when you're comfortable, the hours spent in the office honestly fly by. Feel the DVL difference for yourself. Try an X-Chair for 30 days completely risk-free. X-Chair is on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. You can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X wheels for your X chair. That's xchairtom.com. xchairtom.com.
On the line with us is Doug Christian with Talk Media News. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Doug, what's going on in the world today? What's the top of your hit parade for the news? I'm going to go to the East Room to watch President present the Medal of Honor, which is a nonpartisan event because it's always uh, pretty heroic when someone is willing to risk their life like that. And, of course, 60% of people who receive that award actually die before receiving it. Wow. it so this is act- to a soldier. This is not the medal that he's going to give to Art Laffer. No, no, that's not a medal of honor. That's a medal of, was it medal of freedom, I believe. Yeah. Of course, the upper curve is kind of laughable in many ways. I mean, he drew it on the back of a napkin, and Ronald Reagan had used it to justify tax cuts, of course, in the 1980s. And there had been a time, perhaps in the late 50s, when the incremental tax rate for uh, very high earners maybe was a little too high, and that curve was effective. But now the tax rate is so low in comparison. I don't think it was too high. In the, you know, when Reagan came into office, it was down to 74%. Lyndon Johnson dropped it from 91% down to 74%. At 91% during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, we had the strongest growth of the middle class and rich people were growing too, but they were actually growing, their wealth was growing at a rate slightly slower than the middle class, but they were already massively rich. When LBJ dropped it down to 74%, the rich started growing in wealth faster than the middle class, but not dramatically. And then when Reagan dropped it down to 25%, the wealth of the top 1% just absolutely screaming exploded, and it's been on steroids ever since. You mentioned the Medal of Freedom, Doug, the little known fact, when I flew out here, I just flying in from Seattle, I was standing at the gate and they said people were in wheelchair, you know, if you're disabled, you can board first. And then they said families with kids under two can board. And then they said active duty military. We honor our active duty military because they are willing to walk into the line of fire. They walk into bullets. When a police officer gets killed in most places around the country, the funeral for the police officer basically shuts down the town. It's something you know people show up for. It's like a giant, almost a parade kind of thing in memory of the police officer. Why? Because they're willing to walk into the line of fire. If you add up all the cops who are killed on the job in the United States last year, if you add up all the cops who were killed in the line of fire and you add up all the U.S. military who were killed in action or killed with guns all around the world, and you add together those numbers of all the cops and all the soldiers who died in the line of duty, it's a smaller number than the number of children who were killed with guns in the United States last year. And it's been that way since the end of the Vietnam War. But nobody, no gate agent is saying, hey, if you're under 18, you may board first because we really honor your willingness to lay down your life for the profits of the gun manufacturers. It's well, nuts. Yeah. The NRA is a gun lobby. That's what it really is. And the whole idea yeah, is, it it really is, is profits for uh, shareholders. And yeah. in that sense, the idea that somehow the NRA is about safe gun ownership anymore, that's just uh, thrown out the window these days. Just not yeah. happening. So, Doug, what else is up in the news? Well, there are a lot of things. Of course, Iran is forefront right now. We've got two pugilists, one John Bolton, who is National Security Advisor. And I don't see how he is advising in security. What he's doing is he's trying to get us into a war with Iran, as he tried to do with a previous president, get us into a war with Iraq. And then, of course, there is Mike Pompeo, who ought to know better, because he was, in fact, a graduate of Annapolis. He is a very intelligent person, but he is just strangely hawkish and is also desiring this idea of getting into a war with Iran, which is 
I mean, anybody who has looked at the situation, I've actually been to that area many times, and I can honestly say that uh, Iran is a much more robust country than perhaps our news media makes it out to be. You've been and, inside Iran? Yeah, I've been to Iran. My grandfather Describe was in, it for our listeners. Yeah, my grandfather was in the oriental rug business, and so I did quite a bit of traveling in that area. And I can say that Iran is a sophisticated, intelligent country, and this idea that somehow we would be able to just simply win a war in Iran is, it, well, it's just foolishness. It's absolute insanity. And it reminds me a bit, actually, of the kind of foolishness that we got into in Vietnam. In 1955, Graham Greene wrote The Quiet American about mm -hmm. uh, the French in Vietnam, and he, he was describing just the fruitlessness of fighting what they called then the Viet Minh, how they kind of blended into the villages during the day and then ambushed at night. He said the only way, the only thing the French could do is burn down villages and just kill innocent people, which sounds like 1968 and My Lai all over again. We should have known that before we went to Vietnam, and we should know that now before we go into Iran. Yeah, yeah, we should have learned from the lesson of the French in Vietnam, certainly. So what else is happening in the news? Trump, I guess, is musing privately that we should get out of the defense pact with Japan so that, of course, there was a reason that we had a defense pact with Japan that he may have forgotten about. And that is, of course, the nationalism of Japanese nationalists. Yeah, and now the reason to have, you know, to keep our military bases there is uh, North Korea and China. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Doug Christian with Talk Media News. Thanks a lot, Doug. Thanks. Good talking with you. Kenny in Bronx, New York, listen on WBAI. What do you think the U.S. could do about Iran? I think that we should go back to the Iran deal that uh, uh, Obama and five other nations No, not about that, about the, about the shooting down the drone. Oh, I don't think that we should run drones into their territorial waters. I think that you know, there, there are... Well, waters. that's the thing we don't know, Kenny. This is what we don't know right now. There are a half a dozen countries in that region that are that are doing air traffic control over that region. There has to be radar that shows exactly where that drone was. And the United States government certainly has radar that shows where that drone was, and, and they're and not they releasing it. And the Iranians have released the specific GPS coordinates. So right now, they seem to be winning the information war. I'd like to see some actual data. Well, they know the specific GPS coordinates of whatever they want. That doesn't mean the drone was there just because they picked some GPS coordinates out of the air. Right. So point me to some proof, Kenny. And, and uh, you know, at that point, I think we should have a conversation about what to do if Iran shoots down a drone that's in international waters. That's a crime. I'm with you on that. But if they shot down a drone that was in their waters, that's a whole different thing. That's a crime on our part. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you?
Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today we're reading from Our Women on the Ground, essays by Arab women reporting from the Arab world. And this is from the introduction by Sahafia. When I first visited Raqqa Hassan's Facebook page in 2014, I think it's Raqqa Hassan, uh, in 2014, I was struck by her profile photo. The Syrian woman had paired a black hijab with a figure-hugging top that was embroidered with gold sequins. Her eyebrows were impeccably groomed, and bronzer contoured her cheekbones. It was a daring look, considering that she lived in Raqqa, the northern Syrian city that was, at the time, controlled by the most brutal Islamist group in the world. Most striking, though, was the defiant expression on Rakia's face, a defiance reflected in each one of her Facebook posts. Everything about the petite woman screamed, I am here and I will not be silenced. Rakia was a Sahafia, a woman journalist, who secretly reported on the crimes of ISIS from inside Raqqa. But she was no ordinary reporter, at least by mainstream media standards. The 31-year-old of Kurdish descent wasn't employed by a major news outlet. She never had a byline or a dateline and was never trained to cover warfare. She hadn't conducted any interviews, and she certainly wasn't impartial. She participated in an anti-government protest and openly criticized Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. Online, Rakia was fearless, even though vocal opponents of ISIS were often swiftly executed. The citizens soft Sahafia wrote in chilling detail under a pen name, Nisan Ibrahim, about the atrocities the group was waging on the people of Raqqa. She shared her reports on Facebook, sometimes posting several times a day. As Rakia amassed a large social media following, her friends advised her to take down the photos of herself that were viewable to the public to protect her identity, but she refused. A philosophy graduate at the University of Aleppo, Rakia was known for the personal, poetic, and somber tone of her social media posts, which were always written in Arabic. She wavered between reporting what she'd witnessed and writing about how she felt. In December 2014, less than a year after ISIS declared Raqqa the capital of its caliphate, she posted the following, In Syria, life and dignity have become two parallel lines that never meet. Rakia mostly referred to ISIS as Daesh, the acronym for al-Dawa al-Islayah, uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Greater Syria, which has reportedly drawn the ire of some ISIS commanders as it strips the terror group's label of its reference to Islam. Daesh has closed all internet cafes in the countryside, and most likely in the city too, the citizen Sahafia wrote in June 2015. Without the internet, we will lose our only way of communicating. Dear God, emigration is a loss of dignity and a form of humiliation, while staying here is hell. Dear God, where should we go? What Rakia presented in her harrowing posts was an authentic account of the events unraveling on the ground in Raqqa. Those accounts came at a time when few Westerners could report from within Syria, but they nonetheless commanded the international journalistic narrative on the country from afar. One of Rakia's final posts on Facebook was also her most unsettling. I'm in Raqqa and I've received death threats, she wrote on July 20th, 2015. When ISIS soldiers arrest me and kill me, it will be okay, because while they will cut off my head, I'll still have dignity which is better than living in humiliation. Shortly after that post, Rakia was abducted by ISIS and never heard from again. In January 2016, her brother received confirmation from the terror group that she had been murdered along with five other women. At the time of this writing, Rakia's body has not been returned to her family. Well before Rakia was killed, I wondered what her story was. Why did she turn to writing and citizen journalism, despite knowing that death would be a very likely outcome of her outspokenness? Why did she choose the pen name Nisan, which means April in Arabic? 
How does she reconcile the identity she presented online with what was expected of her at home or by the society she lived in? Much like Rakia, scores of women in or from the Arab world and broader Middle East have quietly and courageously risked their lives to write about the coming apart of their region. These women are fierce reporters who have helped shape the narratives of perhaps the most important moments in their homeland's modern history. A time of failed revolutions and violent warfare, widespread political and social upheaval, and the worst refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War. And yet, despite their access, expertise, and the obstacles they must overcome in order to do their jobs, they haven't received as much attention as their Western and often white male peers. Our Women on the Ground, this book, presents intimate and rarely heard accounts of what it's like for a woman to report on a region she hails from. The stories of the 19 Sahafiat, whose essays make up this collection, are crucial, not only because they have contributed to our understanding of what is transpiring in some of the most dangerous countries and protracted conflicts in the world, but also because they intrepidly crush stereotypes of what it means to be an Arab or Middle Eastern woman today, especially in the era of U.S. President Donald Trump, the rise of populism, and the far right in Europe and elsewhere, and ISIS. Arab women are often misunderstood on multiple levels and by multiple groups. On one hand, an Arab woman may be victimized or pitied by outsiders who think her to be submissive, oppressed, or subjugated. She's occasionally boxed into one identity, whereby, for example, her Arab identity is incorrectly conflated with a Muslim one, and she is frequently exoticized or superficially celebrated. On the other hand, an outspoken Arab woman is sometimes deemed improper or an anomaly, by both outsiders and the society around her. Professionally, she might be considered less of a threat than her male peers or not taken seriously, and she is sometimes actively silenced or passively unheard. This anthology is, in part, an effort to disrupt such flimsy stereotypes. The Sahafiat come from different generations, faiths, and nationalities, reflecting the diversity of an entire region. They are writers, reporters, broadcast journalists, and photojournalists. Our Women on the Ground is the book. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program, all three hours of our program, anytime you'd like? Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Harbin, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show, anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com slash Tom Harbin. Thank you. Paul in Cary, North Carolina. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? I hear a lot of people talking, specifically Bill Maher. I believe he said that he don't believe that Trump will leave after the 2020 election. And I'm predicting that I believe Mr. Trump is going to, if he loses that election, he isn't going to leave. In fact, I think he's going to cause a divisive effort to get his base riled up to where they will probably hit the streets or cause some type of chaos that will say, no, we want this guy to be the president. Like, he'll kind of force the issue, but in a subtile well. Uh, subtile well. What do you think about that? I'm very concerned about it, Paul. I'm, I, am, I am very, very concerned about it. Um, in this book, The Turner Diaries, that, that animated Tim McVeigh and an entire generation of right-wing terrorists, um, this book came out in the 1970s, and um, this guy wanted to 
turn America back to its its white Anglo-Saxon roots, right? And Correct. which is language that you'll hear from these white supremacists right now. And so what he did in this novel, this is a novel, but it's a novel that's been read by all these guys, right? And and in fact, if you go back and you look at a lot of these these um, mass killers who are motivated by this kind of thing, they, the Turner Diaries is part of their collection. In this book, this the the hero of the book blows up the blows up a federal building in Oklahoma City. The response to that from the federal government, whoever was president at the time, decides, okay, enough of this already, we're going to put an end to this, and clamps down on people having access to guns and starts sending out the, the federal police, the FBI and whatnot, going door to door, taking people's guns. In response to that, all the good white Christian gun owners rise up against the government, overthrow the government, start a mass slaughter of people of color and Jews. And at the end of the novel, the last guy standing is, you know, or the, the, all the white people are the last ones standing with their guns. And this, this bizarre fantasy is widely shared in right-wing circles. And if Donald Trump were to refuse to leave the White House after he loses, or if he does leave the White House because the Secret Service says, hey, you know, you want to leave or you want to go to jail? Or, you know, if, you, um, if he does leave the White House, what I think is a more likely scenario, Paul, frankly, is that he will leave the White House and then he will get his own platform. He'll get his own show on Fox. He'll become, uh, he'll, he'll, be, he'll have the Twitter, he'll have his followers, he'll be doing rallies all over the country. He's going to launch a movement very similar to the way that the National Socialist Movement was launched in the late 1920s in Germany. And um, that's my opinion of what's going to happen. And I, I fear that this could lead us right into a civil war or into fascism. Um, yes, sir. And I thank you for that. But I'm saying I, I want to make that I'm going to I'm going to call it now. I mean, I, I when 2016 election, I, I was one of the only other few other than Bill Maher that agreed and said, I believe that he was going to win that election because of uh, being as a, a brown person with Asian and Hispanic background of uh, just watching from a third perspective this country has i didn't come to this country being brought by my stepfather who is white and he told me you know he's like hey you come here you have opportunity now taking advantage of that but watching what's going on it's very scary to see that people are okay with what what's going on and and they just i feel like they're just standing by just kind of waiting for for that kind of like the hammer to drop or some some hero or some yeah. avenger show up and i don't think that's going to happen i think we have to stand up as as people who believe in the democratic system and say hey look i'm gonna fly yeah spot on we cannot allow that colleen in manorville new york hey colleen thanks for watching us on free speech tv what's on your mind today my friend margaret who was the daughter of two japanese born parents was born in pasadena california and when she was 16 she was put into a camp in arizona and aside from the fact that she said it was a nice word that they used camp we had guards with rifles we had barbed wire you couldn't leave unless you had permission they still treated these people better than what's going on at the border but she said that even after they were allowed out of the camps if concentration camps is because she's that's what she called them and she yeah. said you know so does george Takai. they took yeah they took everything of ours they took all our possessions whatever you could carry was all you were allowed to have 
and her father sued the government. He got like $1,200 for everything that they had lost. But she said even after they were gone, there was martial law. And they took all these people and they broke them up into small communities all out, all throughout the United States. And she actually had to go to work for the Wrigley family, Wrigley Chewing Gum, as maid, because everybody loved having a Japanese maid. And her father was not permitted to work because of his gender and his, and so forth, that he had to be home by a certain time, and he couldn't get a job, and he was a landscaper. So they were in Chicago. Who's going to, you know, hire a landscaper in Chicago? So she wound up supporting her family for a number of years as a maid. It was really horrible on the family. The recompense that came from the government after a while was only for the people who were still living. So her father was dead. Her brother-in-law was dead. Um, you know, certain people had passed away. So all of the people that had passed had no claim. So only the people who were still surviving got that money. And I don't think a lot of people understand how inequitable it was, because the families were never really compensated. And the only reason they were put in these camps is because they looked different. And, it, you know, it's just, she. I'm, I'm almost glad that she's passed away. I miss her terribly. But uh, to, for her to see this happening again would just break her heart, because she was a sweet lady. And... You know, she she just wouldn't be able to understand this. It might break her heart or or it might it might trigger PTSD. I mean, I I have to imagine that any of the older uh, survivors of internment camps and 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 for that matter, American soldiers who've been held as prisoners of war are looking at what's going on and experiencing it at a very, very visceral level. Colleen, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. We need to amplify this phrase, concentration camps. We need to have this on everybody's lips. This needs to go far and wide. We need to be talking about it as much as we can to as many people as we can. Um, the uh, A newspaper in Salt Lake City, Utah, a couple of days ago, one of the major newspapers in Utah ran an op-ed, the voice of the, edito- the editorial voice, right, the voice of the publisher, saying, yes, they're concentration camps. We need more and more of that, and anything you can do to help that happen. Write letters to your local newspaper is good. Richard in Bellflower, California. Hey, Richard, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. You know what I wondered when the Japanese-Americans were in those concentration camps, what happened to their homes, their property, their businesses, and even their money? Stolen. They must have had money in banks. Yeah, it was all stolen. It was all taken. An earlier caller talked about a family that she knew. She was friends with a woman who was, you know, interned in one of these camps. And when they got out, they had lost everything. When they got out, they sued and they got $1,200. A few years ago, the survivors of the Japanese concentration camps, the U.S. concentration camps for people of Japanese ancestry, received, I believe, $20,000 each for each one of the survivors which in many cases was just a, a meaningless amount of money. I mean, it was a good gesture. And, and it should set the stage for a conversation, a larger conversation about reparations, because what we did to people of African ancestry for to 400 years in this, well, to this day in this country, prior to the 1960s, you could argue, is even you know, far worse than the concentration camps, and in some cases even today still is. But, Richard, that's what happened. So thank you for the call. Olivia in New York City. Hey, Olivia, what's up? Hi, Tom. I want to thank you for all you do, first of all. And secondly, I watched you on Bill Maher on Friday night, hoping you could get a word in, but you weren't able to. And uh, it's too bad, because I wanted to listen to what you had to say. But of course well, I got a few words in, Olivia. 
it wasn't totally terrible. That Republican woman sitting next to you took took over the whole show, I think. But anyway, I the thing I wanted to follow up on Donnie Deutsch. I want to tell everybody or to remind everybody that Donnie Deutsch is worth two hundred million dollars, and he will never vote for a Bernie Sanders or or Elizabeth Warren or any of those people because he's a Wall Street uh, lover. You know, I mean, he's one of those guys. He lives in the city yeah. and. He's one of those guys. I just wanted to, to know, everybody to know that about him. Okay, noted. Thank you, Olivia. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I, in, I, generally speaking, I'm not a big fan of trashing people by name individually and all that sort of thing, but, but it is useful to know where somebody's coming from. Lisa in Marina Del Rey, California, listening on 90.7 FM. Hey, Lisa, what's up? When we talk about concentration camps, people get a little bit abstract. You know, it's kind of an abstract term, but as you and I know, German is a brutally efficient language. And the concentration is a gathering point to bring your enemies of the right. state or your undesirable people into this one spot. Because yes. people don't think about it that way. And, you know, as you're comparing the concentration camps to the death camps, well, this is where they would concentrate the people before sorting them out and shipping them out. But possibly the death camps. You're right. That was the German phrase, and it did mean that, and it still does mean that in German, but in English, it doesn't, you know, people, concentration, what the hell does that mean? Um, and thus, you know, we've got these words, detention and internment, which are English phrases that are much more specific and we understand. But, but you're absolutely right, Rich. The whole origin of concentration in concentration camps was bringing them together, also segregating them from the rest of society. Back to you, Rich. Yeah, and I want to mention there's a very good German movie. It was made in 1990 called The Nasty Girl, based on a true story about a modern-day woman who makes the mistake of researching the uh, history of her small village and finds herself blocked at every attempt and exposes... She ended up having to get kicked out of her, or she left her town because she exposed some of the leading modern-day citizens were involved in organizing the concentration camp outside of, I believe, the town of Bressau. Do you know if it's like on Netflix or Hulu or something? I have no idea. I saw it when I was living in Germany on TV. Oh, Sean just said it's on Amazon Prime, on Hulu, and on Amazon, so... Yeah, there you cool. go. Rich, thank you. Well, you just had a caller who raised a really interesting thing. He said, he said, basically, you know, the only guy out there that Donald Trump listens to is Vladimir Putin. And Putin doesn't want us to attack Iran. You know, Russia is an ally of, Iran, of Iran's. So we find ourselves in this very bizarre situation where literally the thing that might prevent World War III is Putin calling Trump and saying, don't you dare, buddy. And so, do, do we need to reach out to Vladimir, to President Putin, and say, "Would you please talk some sense into our president?" Um, it's, I, I, you know, it's just, it's just a, a kind of a shocking thought. But that's that's what we've come to in this country, isn't that amazing? I also wanted to talk about the Fed. If if we don't have an independent Fed, then our country, our economy, which you know, of course, is our country. Uh, in many ways. I mean, he defines the, the quality of life, certainly, in our economy, is essentially at the mercy of a dictator. Um, the Federal Reserve, you know, they're, they're, it, it looks right now like Jay Powell is going along with Donald Trump. Now, you know, in Jay Powell's defense, our Fed is not the only 
Federal Reserve or you know equivalent central bank in the world that is engaging in uh, what I think is extremely dangerous stimulative efforts. Right, the European Central Bank, the ECB, uh, is. I'm not sure if they're fully into negative territory now. I think they may be. Um, a number of individual countries, their, their bonds have gone into negative territory. So if you want to buy the bonds of some of these countries, you actually have to pay them rather than them paying you. Like if you buy a U.S. government bond right now, the government pays you 2% for basically you're loaning them your money. Um, but in some countries in Europe now, um, if you buy a bond, you have to pay the government in order to have the privilege of holding on to the bond. This has literally never happened before. Literally. I mean, that's how incredibly weird this all is. And what a screaming alarm bell in the night, to paraphrase Jefferson, this should be. And here in the United States, we're, you know, we're at 2% more or less. Trump is out tweeting and yelling about how, how uh, oh, it has to go lower than that, you know, because as the interest rates go down, borrowing costs for consumers and for businesses decline. And so what happens? Businesses go into debt and consumers go into debt. Consumer debt right now is at $14 trillion. I don't have the numbers for, uh, for corporate debt right now, but it's in the trillions. And if interest rates go up, a lot of that debt is going to be unsustainable. People will no longer be able to pay their debts, which will create a disaster on the level of, of you know, 1930. And so, you know, the Fed is like freaking out. What do we do? You know, if we don't stimulate the economy artificially, this is an artificial stimulus. If we don't just keep, you know, these low interest rates and keep pouring money into the economy, then, you know, we're looking literally at disaster. And Trump is pushing for that. He says, think of what the economy could have been if the Fed had gotten it right. This is one of his tweets. Thousands of points higher on the Dow and GDP in the fours and fives. Now they stick like a stubborn child when we need rate cuts and easing to make up for what other countries are doing against us. They blew it. That's, that's Trump's thing. Well, we've seen countries where the politicians took control of their central banks. Zimbabwe is a great example. Um, uh, you know, it's 10,000% uh, inflation. Right? Because the, the, the president says to the central bank, you will stimulate the economy. Turkey, Erdogan did this. He took control of his Fed. And he, you know, his currency has just disintegrated in large part because of that. He's trying to stimulate his economy. It happens all over the world, or it has happened all over the world. And it almost always, well, not almost always, I would say it always. Maybe, maybe you know of an exception to this rule. I, frankly, have been unable to find one. Louise and I did a fair amount of research on this this morning when we were doing our show prep for, for today's program. Find any country in the world where when their central bank has been taken over by their politicians, rather than remaining independent, that it hasn't led to massive inflation and an economic disaster as a result of sustained stimulus beyond what's appropriate. Add to that the fact that when the economy does go into recession, the only tool that the Fed has is to pour more money into the economy by lowering interest rates and, by, and, 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 and frankly, by buying, by buying uh, you know, so-called toxic assets, which is what happened with the TARP program. But the, the Fed can only do that if interest rates are high enough that you can lower them, right? I mean, interest rates were 5 and 6% in 2007 before we went into the, into the great Republican George Bush crash of 2007-2008. And the way that Barack Obama and, and the Fed, frankly, uh, Janet Yellen, got us out of that great crash 
was by lowering interest rates. Well, you lower interest rates when you're in a crash to get you out of it. But then you raise them again so that the next, I mean, this is business cycle, right? This is like, you know, look, any economics textbook will tell you this. Capitalism has these business cycles. And when they go down, if you want to save your country, you've got to be able to lower interest rates, and you can't lower them if they're already at 2%. Anyhow, a lot to talk about back with your You're calls. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. If you believe that you're not being snooped on or that nobody cares about your online data, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're wrong. Hackers, governments, and ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 a month, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy just like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com tom for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com tom. That's expressvpn.com t-h-o-m for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com tom. Tom to learn more. Mike in Santan Valley, Arizona. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hi, Suburban Phoenix. I decided I need to call out to different mediums like this to say the following. If you know, what is the expected percentage of the 18 to 26-year-old population who should vote this in the 2020 election is under, I assume it's under 50% easily, correct? I believe so. I don't know the exact numbers, Mike. I'm sorry. But, but, but close enough. These people need to get their heads out and realize what is about to happen to this country if they sit there. I'm 65 years old. I've got what I have left. But in my opinion, we changed the world in the late 60s, early 70s, and made it the kind of world we wanted to live in. And we're losing that world in this country now. And the only people who can save it are the young people who have to look and say, what world do I want to live in? This one yeah, or the and, one that you're going to start hearing about in the debates? Otherwise, you yeah, might and if you want to if you want to the get them, then bring back the draft. Exactly. That's exactly where I was going. Yeah. That if you want it, yeah. if you don't realize what could happen to you, you could be serving in Iran for a war that you don't want to fight in because some idiot believes that's what's better for his political career. Right. And the reality is that if Donald Trump does succeed in triggering World War III, and it's not an immediate nuclear exchange that sterilizes the entire planet, but it turns into a protracted war like World Wars I and II, then there will be a draft in the United States, and everybody under 26 is, you know, is, is going to be drafted, and they need to know that. Spot on, Mike. Very well said. Thank you uh, very much for the call, and thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Roy in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Roy, what's up? Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. All right, Tom. Uh, this is relevant to your new book, The Hidden History of Guns. Um, I've been looking for years of how a general percentage, Obama tried to fire, find this out, of the guns that show up south of the border that come from America. There's all kind of studies. I've heard uh, reputable studies that are 60, 70, 80 percent 
I believe it's something like 90%. Now, in Central America, you know, they're having the, the climate changes, the climate crisis. But are we supplying the various criminal elements in Central America with the means of terror and fear, the means of that, that has ruined civil life there? Are we supplying them with the guns? To what extent? I would be astonished if we weren't. I mean, yeah. the United States is made one of our major exports is weaponry. Yeah. So you know, these these are uh, in, in many cases American corporations. Uh, what's the point you wanted to make, Roy? Because I, I want to get a couple more callers in here, and we only have two minutes left. Okay. Um, yeah, the, our gun manufacturers. I forget what you quoted in the book now, but it's uh, tens of millions of guns a year. And they last forever. They have to be going somewhere for no good purpose. And I believe that somewhere is out of our borders that is supplying the criminal elements with the... Yeah. the, the I, I, think, I think you're right, Roy. And, 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 they're all, and it's all over the world. I, you know, I, I, I believe you're right. I don't have any stats to back it up, though. Roy, thank you for the call. Lowell in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Lowell, what's up? Uh, hey Tom. Uh, so uh, today, in today's paper, I saw uh, an article about the mayor of New York being uh, facing a recall election because he can't can't address homelessness well enough. And the the point I wanted to raise is that uh, mayors and local officials can't undo the damage caused by capitalism. So you know, and and I'm very glad that you made the point that only. Um, I, I thought you said one to three percent of the actual homeless are the what you see on the streets. Yeah, it's a very small percentage. It varies from city to city and climate to climate, but it's it's under ten percent typically. Yeah, and I, and I but I just wanted to um, you know raise the issue that uh, you know local city officials and mayors and such cannot undo the damage of capitalism because that is what... Well, they, they also, I mean, you know, the, the solution, and Utah has actually done this. Utah cut their homeless population by 91%, and they did it by giving homes to homeless people as a starting point. Most programs say, okay, get sober first and we'll talk to you. Stop being schizophrenic and we'll talk to you. Get yourself under control. Utah actually gave them homes. The problem is, if New York City was just to do this, you'd have homeless people from all over coming to New York City. It's got to be a national program, and the, the Housing First movement is all about this. I think you'll find it fascinating, Lowell, if you check it out. Thanks so much for the call, Lowell, and thank you all for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 